0: Hey, it's Dave Broadbeck here, your friendly neighborhood statistics professor. So this is a lecture for the 22 winter 22 academic year our term. Um, And it is psychology 3256 advanced univariate statistics, we used to call this course, um, design and analysis one, which is clearly the stupidest course name ever had by any university for a course. So we we changed it. Uh, So it's advanced seed rate statistics. It's mostly just analysis of variance. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble. I hope you enjoy this. It's an advanced stats course. The chance of you enjoying it is vanishingly small, but I hope it's instructive. Alright, today, by the way, when I listen back to my lectures over the years, I start every damn class the same way. I say, alright. And I can't stop. Uh there's no way. So with two topics today. First one we talk about Latin squares. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see two separate videos. Um, so we've discussed procedures for dealing with a nuisance variable. Right? That's something you can measure. But you're not interested in its effect, you're just interested in removing its variance. That's a nuisance variable. So the way we've dealt with this so far is we've talked about blocking. I talked about the randomized block design. And that's the way you deal with it, and typically that's the way you're going to deal with this. And repeated measures which are, in fact, a special case of a randomized block design. The ultimate nuisance variable is a single person being tested over and over again and me knowing that different people are different. right? So repeated measures are also simply a me- way of dealing with a, a, a nuisance curve. There's a statistical way to deal with it that we're not going to talk about in this course. You can learn all about it in graduate school, and it's called ANCOVA. That's an analysis of covariance. So what you do in that case is you statistically control for something. So you remove variance. Um, you control for it statistically. But when I start talking about it, I'm going to start teaching you about something that's beyond the scope of this course, so I'm not going to do it. So, but you can do that, and now and then you'll see someone in their honors thesis or something do what I call them. There's nothing wrong with it; it's a perfectly acceptable procedure. It's it's fine. We're not going to talk about this. We have talked about these two. What if you have two nuisance variables? So you've got an independent variable. That's your third variable. You have two nuisance variables. So you have two things you can measure that you know are going to cause a problem. But you can measure them and remove that variance. And you have an independent variable as well. And that's what you really care about. That's what you want to find out if there's an effect or not. you have to find a way to sort of put them together. In fact, obviously, that's what I'm going to go with today. So if you put one no, one no, one row in a nu, uh, uh, uh sort of put a nuisance variable in one row like usual, and then you put another one into columns, and I'm apparently way too excited about this. Note all the exclamation points! Look, this material's boring. I'm doing my best, all right. I can think back to one student of mine. This is I've, I've, I think I've supervised ninety-eight honors thesis projects in my career. Yes, sir. Uh, I counted up when I applied for promotion a couple years ago, I, I, it's like, it's something like that. That was fun, by the way. You know how it works in academia? You don't just get promoted because you're good at something and your boss says, here, here's a, here's a promotion. You have to, like, sort of literally reapply for your job. It's a lot of fun. Um, so you write a 200-page document. It's great. You spend your whole stuff. Awesome. Now, look, I shouldn't do that. a very good job. But no one just walks up and says, hey, you want more money? But one of my students was looking at smells. And she was interested in, are people able to detect dangerous, noxious smells, which we, we are good at. right? But do they, how well do they detect them if they're mixed in with non-noxious smells? So what if you had the smell of... Tulane, which is um, the stuff that's in, uh what, part It's dangerous, there's a reason, it's, it's not good. And blueberries, no, um, no, smells good. So she had all, she had eight, was it eight? Yeah, she had eight different smells that were nice smells, eight different smells that were bad smells. So she thought, how am I gonna test this? Am I going to need an 8 by 8 factorial design? So, and let's say you need 20 subjects per group. So suddenly she needs 320 and oh, there's not enough psych students. So there's no way she can do this experiment. But it was a really cool idea. And I said, well, why don't we put 8 of the smells in a row, 8 of them in a column, and then we'll just need to test a small number of people. In fact, we'll just test 8 people. Over a different number. actually, sorry, we'll test sixteen different people. So you get something like this. This is on the rows and columns. So here's your rows. Here's your columns. You have. Four different levels of one nuisance variable, four different levels of another nuisance variable, and I apologize for these being A's, B's, C's, and D's because those, so far those have always been what? Different independent variables. Now they're just different levels of independent variables. So over here for a sec. So A, B, C, and D are levels of a factor. They're levels of independent variables. They're not different independent variables. Each level. Occurs in each ordinal position. Note A occurs first, second, third, and fourth. B occurs second, first, third, fourth, and uh, first. What did I say? Sorry, second, third, fourth, and first. Etc. So, like I said, these are pretty rare. I've had one student ever do these things, do one of these. Variable was that because she had nice smells, noxious smells, and there was something else. It was the actually independent variable, and I can't literally remember what it is. Like I said, i supervised a the hundred owners thesis experiment. But instead of needing hundreds of people, she needed 16 people. Right? It's a really cool experiment. So each row and each column have one level each. Called the Latin it's called a Latin square. A Latin square because the Romans used to do these—they're um, basically kind of like math puzzles. They were kind of like uh, classical era Sudoku's, in essence. So that's what they called Latin squares. So do you understand the design before we get any further with this? Because it is a weird research design. Like I said, it's a perfectly acceptable one. It just. It's extremely rare that you run into it, and I professionally run into it once. When I'm old enough that, I, that my son turns 21 today, so I can tell you that I'm old. My daughter who's visiting is 28. I have children older than people in this room, and I've done ran into this once. And I'm not saying that that freaks me out a little bit, but it freaks me out a little bit teacher of psych in Newfoundland. I was 36 years old. I looked out and I went, oh my god, I'm sorry, actually, I said, holy shit, I'm, t- I'm literally twice your age. And I just went back and talked. But The time will come, and it'll be three times, and it's not far away. See, in an equal number of rows, columns, and independent variable levels, this is a very stringent kind of a set of assumptions, right? And then here's your model, which is any score equals the grand mean, these things shouldn't surprise you, the grand mean, now, this is rows, columns, and levels of the independent variable, okay? So any score equals rows, grand mean, rows, columns, independent variable, and of course, error or residual, what's left over. This should tell you a couple things. Take a look at this model. Do you notice anything at this model that should, we should have to pay attention to when we're, when we're doing an analysis like this? Take a look. What do you, you see? Anything there that maybe is out of the ordinary? So while the model says rows, columns, and variable, the model also doesn't know that rows and columns are nuisance variables. It just thinks of them as other sources of variation if the model thinks at all, we start with it. But, do you notice anything here? All right, Jared, you look like you want to put your hand up. What do you, what do you want to say? I, I'm in between where
1: we don't have a interaction.
0: That's correct. That's one thing we're missing. Yeah. Sure. In fact, that's coming to me. Yeah, I was, I
1: was going to say we're measuring a third main effect, but I don't know if that. Yeah,
0: there, but we have three variables. Alpha, beta, gamma, but we would normally have alpha, beta, beta, gamma, alpha, gamma, alpha, beta, gamma. Yeah, that's all. We don't have those. We have no interactions. And you can see why, because to have interactions, you need every level of a variable occurring with every other level. This design is specifically made so you don't have to do that. Like I said, my student, Jen Sushro, didn't need 64 different cells. She needed 16. So she had 16 subjects instead of, you know, whatever that could to be together. So to put that together,
1: um, we are using a design that purposely gets rid of all of the interaction so we don't have it to worry.
0: Purposely, you know, is one way to put it. It's, it's a design that assumes there aren't any. So you have to be sure to burn any, because the only place that error can go is over here, into the error, into the, the epsilon error. The only place it can go and as you can probably guess we're going to test everything with epsilon. So if that gets bigger, it makes the f smaller, and we want a big f. So you want to make sure you have no interactions. And it's hard to know you have no interactions when you literally don't have a design that can show you interactions. Like, it can't show you them. And you can't even really get it through exploratory data analysis. So you better be just damn sure there aren't any. That's why you read the literature. If you read the past literature and see that these things ever interact, then they do nope, then you're fine. If there are interactions, it's going to make the error term bigger, which is going to make finding it significant enough harder. So it's going to make, if there are interactions, you're going to be more conservative, which is nice. Because at least you're not going to make a fool of yourself and say things are there that aren't there. You might miss something that's real. So this is a very, this, th- there's a reason I've seen it once in my career and that's because it only works in extremely specific circumstances. The analysis of variance table looks like this. You've got three sources of variation, rows, columns, and the independent variable. And There's something left over, we're going to call it residual. And the degrees of freedom work like this. You have p rows, p columns, and p levels of the independent variable. You have p minus 1 degrees of freedom for rows, columns, and IV. Your residual has p minus 1 times p minus 2
1: degrees
0: of freedom. And your total is the number of observations minus 1, because that's always what it is. So if you ever see it on a quiz or on a test, like the, well, the test, the only thing left is the final, but if you see one that says rows, columns, independent variable, that's a Latin square. And you should look at that and say, I know that's a Latin square, now I just have to work out what the design looks like. And if I see that the P minus 1 is 5, well, that means it's a, and if these are all 5, 5, 5, and what would this be? This would be 5 times 4, so 20. Answer yeah, right. Well, it's gotta be a six by six Latin square.
1: There's nothing else it can be. Yeah. Um sorry, that alpha was rows and theta was Colors. columns.
0: Yeah. No. I mean it doesn't really matter which, but yeah, that's, that's the that's convention. So yeah, in that case you'd have what? Five, 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 twenty, because five and six minus one is five. 6 minus 2 is 4, 5 times 4 is 20. 5, 10, 15, 20, 35, and oh, we have 36, because it'd be a 6. Yeah, that's right. Because you should look at that right away and say, that's a Latin square. Now, we're very tempted to always go A, B, C, D, and then switch, shift it over, shift it over, shift it over, but that's only one possible square. So how do you choose the Latin square you use? Once you know the dimensions, four by four, or, or like Jim's experiment, eight by eight, there are tables of Latin of, of Latin squares. Like they exist uh, in the back of certain textbooks, and they exist on the internet, and you can just find a random Latin square and use that. So I'm, I'm showing you the one that just goes A B C D E or whatever, and then we shift the E over here with E A B C D etc. But it doesn't always have to work that way. It's as long as each Level occurs in each ordinal position, so there's a lot of different possible squares. So you choose one randomly, typically. As like I said, these are two quick ones today. Sort of just mopping up at this point, mopping up analysis scenarios. So these can be really useful designs if you meet their very stringent assumptions. So, like I said, uh you can look it up if you want on the library. Honors thesis experiment done by Jen Sushiro in about twenty, Jesus, two thousand seven, maybe two thousand eight, something like that. And her design method, so we said, yeah, let's just do a Latin square. What the hell? So she did an eight by eight. She had sixteen people instead of a like an eight by eight Latin square. Instead of an eight by eight design with sixty-four cells, let's say twenty subjects per cell. Suddenly, we need more subjects than we have students. And so we couldn't have done the an experiment any other way. There have to be no interactions. Uh, Jen did a lot of reading uh, and, and found out that no, these, the, the, the variables that she was interested in didn't tend to interact, they were quote as we say, so it was no worries. So an equal number of rows, columns, and levels of the independent variable. But if you have those, your goal. These are really good designs. Unlike the hierarchical one that I talked about last week, which is like, just don't do this unless you have to. This is fine. Chances are, though, you're going to run into it hardly ever. Now you could have something where you have enough sub. Let's say you have. Let's say you have a five by five lattice, where it kind of sat. But you have. So five by five gives us, what, 25 observations. Let's say we have 50 people. You could actually do two squares, and then you'd have, this is where it gets really weird, you'd have rows, columns, independent variable, error, but you'd also have squares. You'd have two degrees of freedom for different Latin squares, which is one. That's something more theoretical. You can also have a cube. Again, this is the kind of design that no this is the kind of design that shows up in graduate textbooks to confuse you. And then you use Hebrew letters for the um, depth for some reason. And that's a Greco-Latin square, that one's called. And then there's the hyper-Greco-Latin square, which actually is four-dimensional and you can't imagine Statistics books are great that way when you get to graduate school. You look at that and go, is this ever gonna happen? No. Yeah. All right, questions about Latin squares? Don't worry about hyper-greco-Latin squares. I'm just telling you those things exist. All right, good stuff. (laughs) So that's Latin squares.
1: This here. Here This thing on?
0: Okay, today, not today, but, well, it is today. Maybe it sounded like this is the first thing I'm talking about today, and as you know who are sitting here, this is the second thing. But unequal cell sizes and empty cells. Unequal cell sizes and empty cells. Okay. Most designs assume equal ends. just how it works. You'll note that I'm always showing you that. It's like what's n equal, and I don't say what's n equal here, what's an equal here, what's an equal here. I just say what's n. It's best if they're the same size. It makes analysis, it makes postdoc tests especially a lot easier than the same size. Except for the very simplest kind of design, like one-way analysis of variance that we started back when we were in that, in that other classroom, and I used to swear a lot because the idea wasn't working. I think I threw something at one point? Um, no, I almost threw something. I stopped myself. Because I have a, a filter. Hard to believe, but it's in there. But we talked about that. And we, we had, you get about equal cell sizes. They're no big deal. But most designs assume equal ends, and, you know, considering everything, it's about variance, and variance depends on n. I think about how, you know, when you calculate a mean score, which is the variance, it's always got something about the observations minus one so the total. Yeah, it's about variance. Variance depends on number of observations. Best if we keep that the same throughout all our groups. Let's say you don't have equal ends. What do you do? Well, the first thing you can do is ignore it, which you can do without too much many problems as long as they're very close to being the same size. Okay. So that actually wasn't one of my points but this is what most people do is they just ignore it because it's like you've got 12 subjects here and, 18, uh, and 13 here and 12 here and 12 here. That's fine. But you know what? If you've got a 2 by 2 and you've got 12, 12, 12 and 13, go collect three more freaking data points. You know? Seems to me. You can estimate the missing values. Well, you could, I guess. Yeah, I guess you could. Use the mean. So maybe use the mean of the median, perhaps, a measure of tendency. dependency. Uh, in fact, SPSS, there are, you can deal with missing values in a lot of ways. One of them is to the say, You can tell it to put the mean in. Do you want to put the grand mean in? Do you want to put the mean for a one or whatever, or mean for a two, whatever missing? Or do you want to have? Do you think it should be? I don't know. It's not actually an easy thing to do. At first blush, it's like, yeah, just put the mean in. Yeah, but the grand mean or mean? Hmm, I don't know. And there's a lot of different ways to mathematically do those So. It's not like it's wrong to do this. I would prefer you just either ignore it or or just go collect a little bit more data. Um, But like I said, do you include the interaction or not? Because if there's an interaction, let's just say it's a two by two, just something very simple. And you're missing one data point. And it looks like there's an interaction, but what if you thought, well, maybe that one data point would take the interaction away or something. So what do you do? I I don't know. It's a tough call. It's a very tough call when you have um, unequal cell sizes about what you're going to do to fix them. But no matter what you do, you've lost degrees of freedom. So when you add in an an estimated value, which is not a bad thing. Um, Personally, I would instead go collect more data, but if I couldn't and I really needed equal cell sizes, I might estimate them, but I would keep in mind that if I add a variable, a value that I've just estimated, it's not like that increases my degrees of freedom. So let's say I had you know four, 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 and one. So four subjects, four subjects, four subjects, and one. So right now I've got thirteen, but what I'm really hoping for is sixteen. So I estimate four values, three values, to get, make it four, 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 and four. I can do that. It's not ideal, but I can do it. But I don't now have 15 degrees of freedom. I still have 12, because I made those other ones up. There was no freedom in those numbers. I made them up. The numbers were not free to vary. So when I say lost degrees of freedom, you not really lost them. You just haven't gained any when you estimate. And I think intuitively that makes a lot of sense. Um, I can tell you, though, that I once, when reviewing a paper for a journal, saw that somebody had done some correlation that didn't work. Like, it wasn't significant. So what the authors did is they said, we then used the following procedure, and I forget what the procedure was, to estimate another 20 values. That's fine. That's perfectly fine, I guess. it's, It's a little weird. Why don't you just go collect more data, but fine. Then they did the analysis. Assuming they gained all these degrees of freedom. No. That is wrong. Now, I caught it. I was one of the reviewers of the paper, and I don't think, I hope I wasn't who caught it. I can tell you that they clearly weren't trying to game anything, like to, to, to get some advantage by cheating, because they were transparent about what they did. They just didn't know what they were doing. So these authors had Done something they'd heard of, which is estimating, you know, missing values. But then they said, uh, "So that gives us more degrees of freedom." It doesn't. So they didn't quite know what they were doing. And I was very tempted in my review to write to write something very snarky, but you try not to do that because it's not really nice. So instead, I said, "Just refer to them, and I reference statistics book, and they said, please don't do this, and you don't get the extra degrees of freedom, etc. I'm only snarky in reviews to my friends. Like, if it's a friend of mine's paper, and I'm reviewing it, and they don't know it's me, because it's all blind. Save your blind jokes. But it's all blind, um, so they don't know it's me. But I know who the author is. They're not going to do a the joke. Call because Why not? Not everybody, if you don't know me, you don't know that I'm just kidding when I say something, you always have to be careful. Reviews now for insert the Natural Science Engineering Research Council that funds research, they actually now say no sarcasm, please. And I like to think that, oh, I made that out. See, lost degrees of freedom, or at least you haven't gained them by adding extra numbers, which should be intuitively just obvious, it seems to me. there are other ways to do this. So most of our analyses that we've talked about, in fact everything I've talked about up to this point, we use something called type 1 sums of squares. which should tell you something. There are more than one type of sums of squares. Type 1 sums of squares are weird. Even though they're intuitively appealing, type 1 sums of squares that I've been showing you, you know, sum of this, minus this, squared, divided by this. Or not divided, by the sums of squares. Um, When you calculate those, if there's an interaction and you have unequal cell sizes, They can make it a, there's a problem with the estimate, There could be a problem with their i I'll just say that with, with, with how they estimate variance. And if the ends are equal, by the way, for all the groups, they're fine. They're perfectly fine. But if the ends aren't equal, it depends on what order you do the calculations in. What? It just does. You'll see why when we talk about regression, because we'll talk about type 1 and type 3 sums of squares. The point is, this can be an issue. The nice thing is, um, when we do our, I've taught you with type 1 sums of squares, because that's intuitively correct. And it still is correct if the number of n's are equal. Um, Our software doesn't use type 1 sums of squares. So when they're unequal, they're bad. If they're almost equal, as I said, they're probably going to be close to correct. Now type two sums of squares. You figure there's going to be, there's a one, there's going to be a two. They're good if there's a missing value. So that's good. So they can actually deal with missing values. Type twos. Type 2s do a thing where they count for incremental amounts of variance. So you put type, when you type 2, it says, okay, we've accounted for all the A. How much extra comes from adding B in? And again, we'll talk, this will make a little more sense when we talk about regression. But the way they work is just somewhat different. So, and they're fine if there's no interaction. <laughs> but if there's an interaction, again, there's a problem, even if there's an equal cell sizes. They're great
1: for
0: unequal cell sizes unless there's an interaction. Yeah,
1: go ahead. Uh, so when we were talking about Latin squares, I assume that the of the squares, you got a, your analyses for that would
0: be type 2 in No. No. Nope. No, let's. Rob, you're, no, you're overthinking it. it. Oh, yeah. You're overthinking it. So your type 1s are what, when I show you things like uh, the sum of uh, column means minus the grand mean, those are type 1 sums of squares. Type 2 sums of squares and type three sums of squares, and type four sums of squares, yes, there's still two more, are all done with matrix algebra. And I'm not going to go into matrix algebra for two reasons. One, I am not very good at it. And two, it really is literally on the scope of this course. It's graduate level stuff, I'm never about and then you, you really don't want it. Anybody here actually know how to do matrix algebra? Did you do it in high school, maybe, or university math? It was just me. And I did it in graduate school, and I'd never done it before. Oh, you've done it? on it in one
1: Okay.
0: Yeah, just a little bit. Better. Yeah, my PhD stats here, because uh, we have a course in grad school, uh, in, in master's and a course in PhD, and we got to the PhD, he's like, so you know how to do native Excel. And well, I'm like, no. Oh, I'm sorry, there was one guy. He's like, yes. So he so, so just uh, handed us all, like, like a third-year math textbook, photocopy, chat. Let them have to do this by next week. Okay, that sounds great. I mean, we did. I can't for the life of me do it anymore. I can probably still invert a matrix. It was like a three-by-three or something. But beyond that, it just... It was not fun. (laughs) Now, type threes, which is, in fact... If you don't know there's an interaction or not, type threes are pretty good. They actually, you use type threes, you're safe. If you've got, you got some missing values, like for cell sizes, and in fact, our software uses type three sums of squares. Even though I taught you about type one sums of squares, you say, Dave, that's not fair. Um, it doesn't really matter because if you have equal cell sizes, type ones and type twos and type threes are the same. So they actually come up with the same solution. That too. So that's not a problem. So I, I can teach you type 1s because that's how analysis of variance was developed with type 1 sums of scores. And also because I think it's intuitively the most pleasing one, which is varied deviations of scores from means. But it has this assumption that's built in that the ends are the same size. And if they are the same size, the type 1s, 2s, and 3s all come up with the same solution, which is beautiful. Just noticed that I had some notes there. I keep going back and looking, and the only thing I have written there is yay. So I'm supposed to be very excited that they're all the same. So, so our software uses type threes because it's it's a nice it's, it's a way to make sure if there are unequal cell sizes, it's still fine. Okay, so that's good. So in fact, if you look at uh, the output from, and you, you know this from watching the videos that I made about SPSS, that when you do anything beyond the one-way analysis of variance you're using something called general linear model, that's the procedure. You're not using this, the compare-means procedure in and, and SPSS. And when it prints out, it actually says type three sums of squares, right? You can actually get it, have it give you the type ones, twos, and threes, ones and twos as well if you want. You can choose those. Those are options, but nobody ever does. We all use type threes because, frankly, they work. So we yeah, taught you from type one sums of squares because they make the most sense, and that's where analysis variance comes from. But when the machine does it, it uses type threes because that it gives us an extra bit of safety if we have unequal ends. Okay. So you can see here. This is uh, I just I, this is an analysis I did using. Type one, type two, and type three sums of squares. And you can see that we get somewhat different values because we have different num- different uh, numbers of subjects per group. This is just something, I just want to actually double-check what I do have here. I just made up some data and ran a type one analysis of type two and type three with different ends. So there's different numbers of subjects per group and this is, uh, what's that look like? What do we got? We got A, B by A, and A by B. Yeah. Okay. And this is telling us that this is the A effect. This is the A effect. Give it a B effect. And a effect. Give it a B effect. An interaction. Doesn't matter. A, B, A by B. And you can see they're subtly different. So I'm just trying to prove to you that I'm not just making this up, and they come up with different solutions. So they're subtly different. Now, oh no, there's a fourth one? These work with empty cells. You've got no data in one cell. So this would be like if you had a two by two, but then you had a missing value. And I'll show you an example of that in a sec. come up with a solution. The problem is, they will not come up with a unique solution. or they'll come up with a unique solution, but that's not the only solution, let's say that. Because there is no unique solution if there is a whole cell of your analysis missing. Let me show you what I mean. What goes there? These are going to be cell means. So there's four, two, two, and whatever. So this is like when we have one of those things and I say break right down the table, is there any effect, they may affect these. What should that be? Oh. don't know. So what, what, what should this be? A lot of people say four. Because they like symmetry. Well, there's more twos than four. It should be a two. Maybe it should be a thousand. I don't know. Maybe it should be a picture of a wheelbarrow. There's no solution to this. I have no reason to believe that this should be anything or, or not. But somehow, I've got no data here. How would you analyze this experiment? So we have two levels of A, two levels of B, but somehow, because we weren't, I don't know, paying attention, we never got anybody in the group A2B2. What would you do? Let's,
1: let's
0: do this in a little thought experiment. So instead of guessing what the number should be here, I don't know what it should be. Like I, I don't know. I can't make up. No, I can make all numbers are possibly correct. What's a what's a way to analyze data like this? What do we want to do? We want to compare three means, right? How could you compare three means? Anybody have any thoughts on how you can compare three means? Jared, go ahead and look at your hand up. I didn't actually,
1: but i okay. was kinda of having a thought. Okay.
0: Other thoughts for mm-hmm. a making thing? Okay.
1: Crazy idea of using like, one way
0: another. Yeah, that's what I do. It's literally exactly what I do. Or I go actually the first thing I do is go I go collect more data. The first thing I would be like, oh shit, I forgot to collect A2B2, I better go get some subjects and collect more data. (laughs) But if not, yeah, look, am I gonna find an interaction with the one-way number? No, that's not gonna happen. But I don't have any numbers here, so I can't guess if there's an interaction or not. Is this gonna tell me if there's a main effect of A or B? No, it's not, but it's gonna tell me at least the three groups differ. And that's, I'm gonna salvage it that way. That's what I would do. I mean, the first thing would be to try to get the data, Because, frankly, let us if we're interested in the interaction, let's go see if we can find it. But if I can't, what I'd do is I would do a one-way analysis of variance between three groups. It would be less than ideal if I was actually looking for interaction, but it also just would be life. Um, now... I have run into this in my life, not with my own data, but I told you the other day about one of the ways you can make a little money in grad school if you're into statistics. If you're good at it, you can sort of rank yourself as a statistical consultant. So there was a lab that wasn't in the psych department, but there was a lab in the building I was in at the University of Toronto. And they had collected some data. um, And they were using a statistics package that I knew. It was actually the one written by my stats prof. He had written his own stats package. It was really nice. And they, they were using this thing. They were actually the eye bank. So they collected corneas and things so people could get transplants. That's it. It was weird. At our building now and then, someone would show up with a cooler. And you'd think, oh, that's a cooler full well, of human eyes. That's interesting. So they're doing this experiment, and they ran the study, and they didn't know how to analyze the data. And I was just one floor up, and I got a phone call. From my stats prof, and he actually said, Probably, they're waiting for you. You can charge them like $200. This will take you 20 minutes. Okay. I said, so Iron Gate, what's, what's, show, tell me about your design. The guy tells you the design. And I said, okay, cool. And I'm putting everything in, and I said, "Um, it wasn't quite this simple. It was more like about a five by seven. And there were like three cells completely missing. And I said, well, there's nothing here, nothing here, nothing here, is that true? He said, well, yeah, there's nothing there. I said, well, you can't, you can't, you can't just say there's nothing there. That's not a thing. He said, well, well you know, otherwise we couldn't. Uh, I said, could get any more? I said, now, so what are we studying here? I was about to say more subjects. I said, it's "I said, can you get more subjects, what do you mean? I said, "Eyes." He said, yeah, well, no, no, we can't. I said, well. Um, Um, and he actually said, couldn't we guess what those were? I said, well, what, and I literally gave him this lecture. I said, what numbers are, what should be?" And he looked at it, and he got this sort of, he said, I remember like seven. I said, why? He said, well, it sort of looks like, I said, wait, well, that can't be a reason. Because I could say a million, and that would also be a possibility. I said, you know, unless you get more data, I said, there's a way to do this. We can compare all these groups. But it's not going to tell you if these two things act together. And he said, uh, why not? And I said, oh. So I, again, I gave him a little, showed him some math. He's like, oh. He said, when you get more data, this is easy. Just get if you, if you can get them. And he said, okay, well, thanks a lot. I said, yeah, that's $200. So he wrote me a check. So I could say, well, you didn't do this properly. It was
1: good. Okay? I was going to. Uh,
0: I mean, that's a much bigger design than what we're yeah. looking at Yeah, of course, yes, yeah. Um, if you,
1: not that it works for what they wanted in the first place. Yeah. But if we did that one way anova, is it like when we do repeated t-tests, that the alpha will inflate, like, our Uh, No,
0: because the, the nice thing about a one way anova is that it, it doesn't care about the number of groups. So it would be okay. Um, I asked a bunch of, it wasn't quite as short a conversation as this, but it did take about 20 minutes. That's about it. Because I could explain to the guy how this didn't work. And what he did, he just didn't do it right. And he actually turned out he was too ambitious and he had too many groups. I said, the only other thing we could do is we can kill this whole column and kill these other two rows. And I believe that's what he ended up doing. So we can kill these, but you're not going to get all the answers you want. But you'll at least get an answer closer to what you're interested in. And that's, I think, what he ended up doing. And then he paid each other bucks. So. So I believe I spent on chicken wings and beer. So I haven't changed that much. So don't have empty cells. Uh, You can have unbalanced designs. They're okay. It's better if you don't. But our software takes care of it because it uses three sums of squares and we're fine. But just don't have empty cells. Uh, If you have empty cells, go get more data. That's the solution. That's actually the better solution, is just go get more data. Don't, you know, type four sums of squares are great theoretically. They make up a solution, but it's not a unique solution. That's the problem. There's, all, there's a, literally an infinite number of possible values that can go into a missing cell. So you don't want it. Questions about this empty cell, missing, you know, unequal cell sizes, etc. Oh yeah, go ahead. How would you test How would I what? How would I test if there's like if I had uh, a design that had like the the two by two with one missing? More
1: so like if we have a test, what? Oh. How are you going to frame the question?
0: Oh, it would be it would be something about empty cells. So I might ask you something like, what I mean, why can't you just use type four subs of squares? Actually, let's, let's change the way I bring that up. Why? It'd be something like. What is what, a weakness of using type four sums of squares when you have empty stuff? And that weakness is, it comes up with a solution, but it's not the only solution. There's a, literally an infinite number of possible solutions. Something like that. I also wouldn't worry a great deal about that. This is something you should know about, but it's not something I think most of you aren't going to have empty. Anything- we have designs like that, and if you did, your honor's thesis supervisor is not going to allow that to happen. And if, if he or she did, they would get locked for the rest of their lives by anyway. me. So they, they don't.
1: So answer two, using type four, just don't make it necessary? Yeah, the, the, really the best
0: way, no. if I said how would you deal with empty cells, your best answer would be don't no. have them. Collect more data. And if I say in the question, but you can't collect any more data, you can say something like there may be other techniques, like turning it into a one-way analysis of variance. Or if you had something like, let's say a five by five and one column and row had missing data, just remove those, both those columns and then run the run the that point of four by four. Right? Because if we have like a five by five and we have a missing cell, we can just kill a whole column, kill a whole row. You hate throwing away data. I mean, it's it's, better than making up data, it seems to me. (laughs) At least it's intellectually honest. It seems to me that estimating values for empty cells is, it's getting, you're getting very close to doing something that I consider misconduct. Even if you are using a mathematical technique, it's still like, just don't do this. Don't do it. Design better experiments. Yeah. Good questions. Other stuff. So let's stop that. All right. Um okay, stop this question.